0: Hey, it is Ross Tucker from the Ross Tucker Football Podcast among other NFL related podcasts. The former NFL offensive lineman and yes, we are going to have an NFL season. It is here, thankfully. So, if you want to bet on the games, it is the Even Money Podcast. If you just want to play fantasy football, Fantasy Feast Podcast or Every Day Your NFL Fix. The aforementioned Ross Tucker Football Podcast.
1: Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Jared Weiss of The Athletic. I think the Western Conference has gotten plenty of attention, and I will get there as well with Real GM Radio. But I wanted to talk about the East, and specifically about the last two fascinating series for the Celtics. The classic against the Toronto Raptors, and their current 2-0 series deficit to the Miami Heat, and... Got a little bit of additional sizzle with some of the reporting that came out over Thursday night and Friday morning. Jared Weiss and I talk about all that. And this episode is brought to you by BetOnline. Use that podcast one promo code to tell them that you came from us. I hope you really enjoy the episode. Thank you so much for coming on.
0: The same intro as always. Some things never change.
1: Yeah. I mean, not going to mess with it too much. Don't need to get creative there, especially because I do the intros separately. Uh, I think the place to start is with the the news of the morning. I, I will I will ask you just point blank: Do some is this something or is this nothing?
0: Oh, it's something. <laughs> it's uh, I mean I had people telling me like that were down there. This was this was as real as it gets. That this was more dramatic than any other really locker room argument that they've heard. But it also one wasn't a literal fist fight. Which is definitely better than it usually is, and two, according to Woj, they smoothed everything over in the middle of the night, and um, there was some stuff in in that report that did not meet what what, what I, with what I was hearing, but I definitely expect that they were able to smooth things out, and I think the big thing was that uh, Jalen during the locker room the skirmish or whatever we want to call it was apparently trying to call for unity. While I think Smart felt like he was being attacked, because frankly, yet another game that Marcus Smart was throwing up some horrible offensive looks in the absolute heat of crunch time and smart usually makes so many incredible plays on both ends of the floor that you can live with him taking a fadeaway over Goran Dragic with 17 seconds left in the shot clock or a contested three pointer over Jay Crowder with 22 seconds on the shot clock or whatever it was. Uh, but he wasn't really making that dramatic of an impact on either end in this game. And so you didn't really feel him overcoming those mistakes and you know, frankly, that those were two really bad wasted possessions and moments where they couldn't afford it. And so I understand why the team would be frustrated with him doing those things. Not, and not to mention, it's like you're in the conference finals. The margin of error is completely gone at this point. Every single unforced error that you make can literally end your season. And the Celtics are making tons of those right now. But. I do think that they actually like each other enough to the point that they can get through this and they can make this a moment of, you know, ripping off the Band-Aid on some wounds and then actually using this as a unifying point. So – Combining that with the fact that I mean, I'm reporting that Hayward is looking to be back by game three. It depends on how his workout on Friday goes, and if that goes well, then he should be playing in game three. And that should give them something that they're dramatically missing against the zone defense. So this momentum can swing pretty quickly here for Boston.
1: Yeah, I think why I was leaning towards, it's not nothing in the sense like it matters for these players' lives, but I don't think it, for me to be something, it has to fundamentally change the relationships and the dynamic of the team. And my instinct is that it probably won't. Teams, when they, especially when they get down in ways that are challenging and frustrating, there are these sorts of blowups. Like that is, that is something that happens. It's not always this specific character, this specific tenor. But, you know, something along those lines can often happen, and especially when the games in some ways are close and winnable. Winnable games that you lose can often be more frustrating, and we can all identify this with our lives. Like, if you just get your butts kicked, then it doesn't feel like, in, like the individual things don't bother you as much, because it's like, oh, if Marcus Smart took two better shots, then we still lose by 10, as opposed to, we could have won this game, not be down 2-0, something like that. But... As you got into, I mean, I think that there is this idea of unity, accountability, and, and Smart is, is is an interesting example of that. I mean, I think that he he does like he has these amazing instincts and his e- effort is a skill and his effort level is is absolutely incredible. And I mean, we saw that in play in some key moments in the Toronto series. We also have seen it a, a few times in this Heat series. It just hasn't been the same type of thing. And there are also, like, it's, it's interesting for him. It's one of the things that makes Smart different, and it has toned down since where he was before, that for somebody who has great basketball instincts and somebody who plays so hard that he sometimes carries that level of confidence too far. And, I mean, there are times when it works out when he hits a bunch of threes in that huge first quarter against Toronto. You might remember the game number. I think it was game 4 um, mm-hmm. And I I think that, you know, so that can be a benefit, but there are times where I can imagine the players being like, come on, man, like that, especially when every possession counts so much towards the end. And so it can also feel like I could imagine smart feeling like he's being persecuted or unfairly maligned considering everything else that he does. So, yeah, I think that it's probably good to work through this. And honestly, a lot of it is only going to happen in the cauldron of the playoffs because it's just a very different thing in the regular season, whether it's in your home cities or in this weird Orlando bubble. So I, I think that it's it's notable but not dr- and dramatic in the sense of like you know the reporting out there, including some of the stuff that you mentioned. But it I, I don't think it's going to change the way they play. I don't think Barkas Smart is all of a sudden going to become this super prudent, judicious player. And I mean, you could make an argument that <laughs> that, it, that would make him worse. Like you know the the idea that this is something that I harped on you know writing about the Warriors for years with uh, Steph Curry is that he has this like. S- this little batch of like unforgivable turnovers and it did come back to bite them and gave seven to the 2016 finals like there have been big moments and the argument that i've heard from some people and i have over time become more persuaded by it is that these are human beings and while you wish they could you know some of it some of the low-hanging fruit you wish they could pick it and just make their game a little bit better you don't want to take away the edge, and I think that's the real challenge with some of these guys.
0: Well, I mean, Steph Curry, Steph Curry, because he's willing to pull up on contested 35-footers, and he hits them. and Or actually, it's the fact that he's willing to take those uncontested and he hits them all the time. You know, these guys have a... The guys that are really great have a very high-risk appetite, and Marcus Smart is one of those guys. And I think it's important when you think about a lot of the mistakes that he's making. You have to think about the way that Brad Stevens has developed him because he's been with Stevens the entire way. And I remember when I when I kind of was early in my career covering this team, and Stevens was very early – uh, and he, he was coaching a pretty mediocre team. People were complaining about how he was giving the green light to Smart and Jared Solinger and all these other mediocre three-point shooters and telling them just take the shot. If it's an open three-pointer, I don't care how much you suck. I want you to take that shot because you're an NBA player. It's an open three-pointer. And if you keep taking that shot and you keep feeling empowered to take it, you're going to gradually get better. And Marcus Smart went from statistically the worst shooter in nba history essentially to not only what did he become a great pull-up shooter this year but was a bad catch and shoot player during the regular season now he's actually mostly hitting catch and shoot threes and it's like he's just turned into a good three-point shooter over the course of these playoffs and that evolution it's like one of the craziest offensive skill evolutions i've ever seen in my life and they did that by just constantly positively reinforcing him constantly feeding into his hyper confidence and so you are going to end up with some of these mistakes because he's so incredibly confident and frankly he does t- he does try to play with a little too much flair and panache when it's not warranted and that's when some of these mistakes come about but to his credit on a team that was really struggling to find somebody that was willing to take a shot and fight for a shot. He's also the guy that when the chips are down, he is more than happy to go out there and try to create a shot. And so, you know, there's certain moments where he's a godsend and there's certain moments where that backfires. But at the end of the day, on balance, I think his contributions are overwhelmingly positive. And his teammates clearly see that and you know that because him and Jalen Brown were just like throwing tomatoes at each other or whatever it was that they were doing in the locker room. And then Jalen comes out a few minutes later and he says that he loves Marcus and he trusts him and that they're going to get past that and I think that's the reason why this is going to be a I don't know if it's going to be a positive turning point but it's going to be a a launching point for them rather than a the moment that kind of dismantles the team because they're able to walk out of there and not just downplay it and say this isn't your business to the media like some of them were saying it's the guys that were at the center of it are saying listen we got in a fight but we love each other we trust each other and we're going to be able to move forward from it
1: well and i think there's an element of continuity both looking back and looking forward with the celtics that is i think valuable and you e- talk about the you know the personality dynamics in play and remembering that by and large we expect the core of this Celtics team to be together for a while and that could include Marcus Smart I I fully expect that it might especially with him you know potentially you know we'll see where the extension kind of stuff can go with him beyond beyond next season he's already under contract for next year so he's not presumably going anywhere and Jalen Brown and Tatum and all those guys like basically they're they're under team control for a while and as long as the team is going to pay up which we'll see and I, I so, I think that that is an, an element of this story is that you know the it 's not a zero sum game it 's not a hey let 's put it together for the rest of this year it 's like these you know you you can 't tear down the relationships too much because the hope is that you will have other battles in the future and that you that this makes you better for those as opposed to creating distance that becomes a problem
0: well, sure I mean, if you can get through fighting with each other in the middle of a series and come out of it and playing together, I think that pretty much strengthens you down the road. And I think the only reason that they're able to get through this moment of fighting with each other is because of that long term established relationship, because they've known each other for a while, because they've seen what each other can do to pick the other one up how Jalen Brown has been the one coming through for them offensively when the entire offense is dying over and over again at the end of these games. I mean, Jalen should be frustrated that, you know, he showed in the fourth quarter how deadly he can be and how he just keeps bailing them out with these sniper threes at the end when things are slipping away and he's able to keep them in the fight. And actually, uh, it was 104-101 with like 40 seconds left or 30 seconds left, whatever it was. And or actually it might have been less than that. And Jalen actually got a good look at a corner three and he just barely missed it. I mean if that went down for his third three in a row, they would have been tied up right at the end of the game and this could have gone completely differently. So I feel like those two guys have proven to each other and to the rest of the team what their value is. And so when you're fighting with each other, it's not a matter of thinking like this guy is just completely, completely wasting our time and hurting our team. Um, and I think that's how teams fall apart. And I think that this is what the Clippers needed. Like the Clippers should have been fighting with each other like this halfway through that series as things were falling apart. And I think the fact that the Celtics are at least trying to get everything out in the open so that they don't fall into the stasis the way that they have in those first two games. I think that's positive.
1: Let's get to Gordon Hayward, and that's very interesting that he's going to play in Game 3. My thought, or that he could play in Game 3, my thought had been with the extended break, largely thanks to Monday Night Football, that the series is going to have between Games 3 and 4, that that might open things up for Hayward, could get some practices and everything else. Uh, so, at first... I thought that the Hayward that the Hayward injury was going to be this mat- was going to be a more massive loss than it than it was, and a big part of that is because why I was wrong was that Brad Wanamaker has really stepped up. I thought that he hasn't been perfect by any means, but I think that he has really helped himself during this time, and and also Marcus Smart stepping into the starting lineup. He played 38 minutes in Game Two. That. They don't—you know, there isn't as much of a need, but not as much of a need and no need are two very, very different things. And Hayward being another capable decision-maker, another shooter that Miami has to pay attention to, and, you know, a reasonable defender. I, don't, I think that adding Hayward to the rotation, depending on how he's used, it might actually make their defense a little bit worse. But some of these stagnation problems that Boston has had, especially when Miami has gone to some of these zone looks— just like happened in the Toronto series, I think that Hayward being deployed, even if he's somewhat limited, can be very useful in specific spots.
0: I mean, we've seen that. Hayward is the guy that's so good at breaking the zone because he can be that nail man that fills the lane. He's the best cutter on the team. He just has such a great feel for where to be on the floor. He's just, you know, uh, I think was it Brad was talking about how floor positioning I know it was Tatum Tatum was saying how their spacing and their floor positioning, which is kind of warped in that second half and Hayward. He's all about that. Those intangible kind of things. He's all about knowing how to fill the right spots of the floor and He's somebody that has a light touch from everywhere on the court. He's comfortable popping a 10-footer. He's comfortable shooting from 18. Obviously, he can shoot from three. So just having someone who has that comfortable touch from everywhere on the floor is important because we're seeing like Tatum, for instance, He keeps driving the lane and taking these mistimed off-balance floaters that he's really fallen into since the start of the Toronto series. And there are a few times against Toronto where he was finding his footing. But in general, Tatum is kind of completely out of his driving game. And so Hayward, he'll bring this sense of balance to them that I think will be there even if he's still really slow or isn't really popping off the ground. Just because for him, it's all about kind of the ground-bound control game. And so... You know, I, I don't know if he's gonna play in game three. It depends on how those his workout goes, but you'd imagine there's no way he's not going to be ready for game four, considering he has pretty much half a week to recover at that point.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And one of the other significant components of the Gordon Hayward absence is the idea that Boston has had a very limited best five. I was of the stance that in game two, their best five actually included Grant Williams because I thought the switch heavy defense was really flummoxing Miami's offense. But generally speaking, like it has created a, a clearer hierarchy, and that's not necessarily good thing especially with somebody like Brad Stevens who is willing to put the best five players out there on the floor for that specific moment in time and against a challenging opponent that is a very important thing to have and so I'm not saying they're necessarily going to go small all the time or oh yeah that's going to be you know this you know Tatum smart Hayward Brown Kemba is going to be like their five but having an extra player to throw into that mix is very valuable.
0: It'll be – I mean the question is whether they're going to go with what I always like to call the Cobra Five lineup, which is their literal best five with Smart at the center. I don't think they can just because Bam's such a big lob threat that they have to have someone tall enough to be able to get up there with them. But you're right. They were at their best with Grant out there. And Stevens went to Tice at the end of the game, which makes sense because Tice is generally the guy that closes games. He's their starter. He's their best big man. And – I don't know. I don't. I, I feel like it did not help the offense for them to go to that because Grant does a really nice job of very actively trying to find screeners or trying to find defenders to hit with a screen and then popping or, or rather short rolling down into the nail zone so he can be the middleman, filling the zone gap and that's not quite what Tice does and Tice is a move with that level of intensity and so I felt like Grant was bringing more energy and more flow into the offense when he was out there and not to mention, I've heard a few people refer to Daniel Tice as, as, a, as a not that good of a shooter or an okay shooter. Daniel Tice has completely lost a three-point shot. He has barely hit any three-pointers this year. He had a, a decent three-point Game, or I want to say a year ago, but this year he's completely lost his outside shot. While Grant Williams, you know, reputations are set early, and Grant Williams missed his first 26 threes of his career, but in the playoffs he's been shooting very well on spot up opportunities. So I think that Grant Williams actually gives them more potential offensively. And obviously, I think we both agree that them switching at the end of games is the way to go. And he obviously is a better fit in the switching scheme than Tice is. Although to Tice's credit, uh, Drogic picked him out in the switch and put him into ISO twice. I thought Tice did a very good job defending those shots. And that was just incredible shot making by Drogic, who has just hit so many incredible shots in the series so far. And I don't know if Miami wins either of these games if it's not for him just making these incredible contested shots.
1: Yeah, I want to talk a lot about Drogic, but we can save that for a little bit. Plenty more to talk about with Jared Weiss, but first a message from Bet Online. The wait is finally over. Football is back. You might not be at a game this year, but you can still be in on the action at BetOnline. BetOnline is going the extra mile to make sure you can get in on everything imaginable this season from game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And make sure to use the Podcast One promo code. You get a sign-up bonus, and it also tells them that you came from us. And there is so much exciting on the slate. Falcons, Cowboys, Vikings, Colts, Rams, Eagles, Panthers, Bucks. With the unusual quarterback matchup for me as somebody who's you know not used to seeing Tom Brady in a Buccaneers uniform and not used to seeing somebody other than Cam Newton in a Panthers uniform Pat Seahawks is another interesting one so a lot of great stuff at bet online you can get in on their season opening bonuses and start off wagering on win division and championship features today Head to bet online today and take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses using that podcast one promo code at bet online you're online. Sportsbook experts. One of the stats that I think is pertinent on Tice. Tice is four of twenty three on three pointers in the entirety of the playoffs so far, and three of those four made threes were against Philly in the first round. And so yeah, I mean it's really been limited in terms of volume, in terms of makes, and you know, you could go back to the regular season and, and it's not as you said, you know, he has this Tice has this strange reputation that he's a, a better three point shooter. He was at thirty that thirty eight percent last year, but remember that was on one that was on one per game. It's He had, I think it was, yeah, it was like 26 made on the year. So it's not mm-hmm. exactly a heavy volume. But yeah, I think that the point you were getting at with Grant Williams as a screener is an underappreciated one. I th- His Williams role within the switching d- scheme, he is better. And I think there was a kind of a sample bias issue there with Dragic hitting those two shots for five points on Tice Late. And yeah, especially for me, the three pointer more than the two. The two, Tice gave him a little too much space, and Dragic knows exactly what to do with that. But. Gordon Dragic is amazing. And so I don't think that that is indicative of Daniel Tice being a terrible fit or anything like that. But the idea of how to attack some of these systems, and that was actually my biggest criticism over, over well, overall of, of Brad Stevens so far in the playoffs. And where the line is between coach and player here is always hard. And I often throw it to coaches, even though it could very well be players, which is every Defense, just like every offense, has specific structural openings and closures that you can that you can attack or be a, basically be attacked by. And the two-three that Miami ran for a lot of the second half of game two. This brilliant thing that Miami does with that, which is actually similar to something that Toronto does a fair amount, is they put they don't hide their worst defenders in the same spot. They put their best defenders at the top of the 2-3 as appo- as opposed to somewhere somewhere in the bottom. And so I think and Bam is obviously at the center of the 3 in the bottom. And so that means that where you have to get a lot of the positive in in the uh, against the 2-3 is actually in those corners and it's hard to start offense in the corners. That's not something that most teams do, and it's a part of what got Boston out of it. It is also a part of what led to those three Jalen Brown three-pointers, two of which he made, and if he had made the third, it would have been a tie game with, like, 14 seconds to go. So what frustrated me in this in, in Game 2 is a parallel but not the same as what happened in the Toronto series. So in in Game in game two, it was, okay, this is what the 2-3 is doing. And so there were, I mean, Nate and I were doing the live calls. We were talking about this as it was going on. It's like, you need to get into the teeth of it. They, Miami was extending it. So you need to get over the extension, force help, and then hit something from there. And that's hard to do. It's not easy, especially with the players in largely Butler, Crowder, and Derek Jones were the three that manned the top of it at the given times. That's hard. It's hard to do. But you need to do that. And then the other thing is involve involve having somebody in the corner, you can do flood and overload concepts, basically the idea that it's not about getting somebody in somebody else's way in a zone because they're not sending extra people. And so you can, can kind of occupy the defender and then you get an opening somewhere because you force them to make a choice. So in game two, what it was about for me was just getting to nuts and bolts and saying, okay, this is, this is where the attack points are. This is what we're going to do. And then that's the parallel with the Toronto series, which for me was the most bizarre thing I've seen throughout this entire playoff so far was in game six and seven, the Celtics consistently, when the switching defense that Toronto played late in those games, they were going after OG Anunoby, arguably the best isolation defender in the entire league, and mm-hmm. Pascal Siakam, who's inconsistent, but I think that he is on the on the you know very good overall. And so it's this it's this process thing that it's like okay, they're making us basic, but we need to do the basic things to get ourselves the best possible matchup.
0: And I think the what's been interesting about the way that those two teams are different in their zones is that Toronto, they like to send help high on the perimeter. And then they'll actually cycle and replace who's in the middle, who's on the weak side, stuff like that. Um, while Miami, they stay pretty locked into their 2-3 formation. Yeah, and and so they just sometimes kinda,
1: the corners pinch, but other than that, not a whole lot.
0: Exactly. But what they're really great with is that, you know, they're putting Drogic and Hero or Robinson and the two, you know, the two wings down in the bottom rung of the zone, which is brilliant. And I love that they have Jones and Butler or Crowder and Butler up top so they can be really aggressive with their ball pressure. But what I really like is that they're taking whoever's in the weak side corner and they're having him lift up to the weak side elbow And so that allows them to completely turn the angle of their zone and load up to ball and stop ball without getting caught exposed. And so Boston earlier in the game, they would try to counter this by either having someone spread out on the weak elbow in the weak corner, or they would have someone in the middle and then somebody hiding in the dunker spot and – They they try to get back to that a little bit so that they could try to get the ball middle and then get the ball to the person in the dunker spot and then attack baseline. But I think Adebayo has just been so incredible at the rim that Tice doesn't feel confident that he can do anything from the dunker spot. And the team seemed to kind of lose confidence in him in that way. So they just kind of started to – it just started to seem like they didn't feel – like there was any value in trying to get to the other side of Miami's zone, and that's when they kind of started just forcing their way through the middle. And they did it. They did. They, they did. They did end up getting a couple of good looks for Jalen, uh, ironically. Well, and some but, of that
1: was also getting somebody kind of to above the break on that to bring Drogic up and then slide somebody behind him, which is how Jalen yeah. Brown got a couple of those threes. Yeah, but
0: it also led to a bunch of ugly Tatum floaters, those bad smart shots. You know, it's there were a few. You know, it's not like my. It's not like. Boston was so terrible that they got blown out in this game like they they managed to get just enough that they were able to stay in it. But it was just the overwhelming majority of the time. It was just Miami's ball pressure up high up top was just too much for Boston that even when they were trying to work out of the corners. Tatum couldn't really get anywhere with it and they just kind of started looking more hopeless and hopeless
1: yeah I think that's a really good point and then Miami added and then largely took away wrinkle that they were doing more side pick and rolls and basically what that was doing was it was it was changing the nature of the help and changing kind of the, not the geometry of the floor but changing some of the angles and Bam was absolutely monstrous at 15 of his 21 points in that third quarter a lot of that coming on side pick and roll and Boston generally speaking the mentality of their defense is you handle your stuff and we're not going to send as much help. And that works a lot. And it, it can even work against Miami. There were times when it wouldn't work very well in game two and game one. But in that moment, they, you know, it, it was kind of using the structure, I think, against, against Boston to an extent. And then it didn't work as well. And Miami moved away from it. They went to other things. I thought that Miami's offense actually was, other than that, some great shot making by Dragic and the turnovers, which is another thing we, of course, have to talk about, I thought that that was something that that Boston reacted to eh, not not super well, but well enough. And Miami's offense missed; they missed some shots, but generally, I thought that you know their half court stuff wasn't amazing. Other than that third quarter when Bam was running wild.
0: Yeah, and I guess the question is, where do you put Jalen Brown? Maybe he has to start guard- guarding Drogic because I mean, Jalen Brown has shown throughout the playoffs that he's the guy that you put when you want to take somebody out of the game well, yeah, when they're a good individual you score. Know,
1: you and I talked like two months ago on this podcast. And one of the things we talked about was Jalen Brown's development. And And for me, that was the logical conclusion, especially when Marcus Smart is, yeah, you know, I'd love to see Smart on Dragic more, but the challenge there is, when Duncan Robinson is in the game, he is a very specific defensive challenge and one that Smart is the most adept at handling because of how good he is at getting through screens and kind of tracking players through all of the other chaos. And so to me, that means you you go to the organizational com- imperative. That's kind of the way I like to think about it. And it's, But it's not just like best player on best player or anything silly like that. It's where can somebody help you the most? And And, sometimes, and I think about that more than where can they hurt you the least. Some people go through that approach and that leads to, you know, like let's say Trey Young guarding the other team's worst perimeter scorer And, you know, that, that kind of thing. But I think Jalen Brown can make a big difference. Also, his size changes changes some of what Dragic wants to do. Now, Dragic will still get his his, at least to an extent. But I think that that's the to me, that's the next stage in Boston's defense.
0: Yeah, and I mean, the funny thing is, they actually distributed the assignment onto Drogic very evenly. They did. There were, yeah, three guys that guarded him for two and a half minutes, uh, a couple more guys that guarded him for a little over a minute. I think that was probably because there was a lot of switching happening with him. But, you know, they had Jalen, they had him chasing Duncan Robinson, and robinson only had i think one shot go in while Jalen was guarding him but miami did score 23 points while while uh, Jalen was on him so i think that they could probably replace the ability to track robinson with somebody else whether it be smart whether it be even tatum but they probably don't want to run tatum through all that um and then they can still, you know, they could at least put Jalen somewhere else where they can direct resources against the person that's really getting the points there. So, I mean, there's no right answer. And, uh, I mean, that's why you're in the conference finals. Right. But I did think coming into the series that Boston's at kind of their edge would just be that they can pretty much single cover everybody on Miami. And they they weren't going to need to get into any crazy schemes to be able to handle everyone on Miami. And I think frankly, that that still holds true i don't think i don't think we've seen any we haven't seen dragic completely abuse any single defender it's been mostly just boston's like dragic is incredibly persistent and he's great at sniffing opportunities when the defense is kind of in a bit of a stasis and attacking then and i don't really put that on any individual defender as much as just the entire team it just boston loses energy and loses focus throughout the game in a way that miami doesn't
1: well, I'm happy you brought up losing energy and losing focus because to me that was the underappreciated story of Game Two. Yes, the 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 big scale dynamics, the two three and the switching and not going to switching and the side pick and roll, like those are those are important tactical things and that's catnip for the two of us because with so, the kind of stuff that we both really enjoy. <laughs> However. There were a series of effort and mental intensity-based mistakes for Boston that, I mean, should, honestly, it should haunt them a little bit. I mean, there was that terrible inbound from Brad Wanamaker, which basically just, it was a great play by Derek Jones Jr., to be, to be clear, but it was kind of lost by the camera angles, but it was just like, inbounded it, and Derek Jones made a great play, and so that turned into an extra Miami possession. A couple of a couple of lazy passes, a couple of give-up floaters that type of thing and also some weird you know passive defensive play from Jason Tatum the one that uh, I talked about a lot on dunked on prime yesterday was Butler ran and saved a ball basically threw it back in left-handed and then just kind of kept on moving and Tatum I guess he assumed a Celtic was going to get the ball nobody did and so J- so Jimmy Butler just had an open run in the basket hero hit him and got a dunk and it's just basically two free points and the challenge for Boston is not every team is going to be perfect every time. That that you know we talked about this a little bit earlier with Smart and Curry. I think that's a it's an important point to make. But what it does is it changes your margin for error. And so if either thing was better for Boston, they absolutely could have won this game. Hell, it, it, as you said, it could have been a tie game with 14 seconds to go easily. Like all that has to happen is one shot goes differently. But it makes it those make it harder when you're facing a capable opponent, a team full of active turnover guys in particular, and hustle guys who are going to maximize all of your mistakes.
0: I just... There's just so many instances and maybe this is a bias that's just sitting in my head, but I just I have in my head so many instances of Miami getting out on massive advantage breaks, probably because of a Jimmy Beller deflection. Frankly, it seems like it's all Jimmy Beller and he's just he's putting his stamp on this series. But there are so many of the plays that we saw Boston doing in the previous series. It's just completely flipped the other way for Miami.
1: Well, yeah, and I mean. One of the other differences, and this is kind of—it's a fascinating reversal of fortune—is that Boston's defense, also because Toronto's offense was so limited as as half-court graders, they were creating stagnation and then and and maximizing stagnation that Toronto's half-court offense just had anyway. And now, like, it's so hard to move to get the inertia, kind of like to break that and get back moving again. And so, like, Toronto couldn't really do that for extended stretches. Now, sometimes they could get it by getting fouled or forcing more turnovers and getting out a little bit in transition. And Boston's transition defense has been really shaky, I would say, overall. Um, but yeah, I mean, that gets back into the turnover thing, which is the, you know, Miami, there were times when their offense was was a little bit slower, wasn't getting there, but Boston turned it over 20 times, 11 of those were live ball, they had more, Miami had more steals than they had turnovers, and that is a huge problem for Boston, it's another way that you make the margin for error even tighter, and that is a big challenge.
0: Yeah, we saw, and against Toronto, I mean, Boston did have a good amount of turnovers, but they were almost entirely dead ball turnovers. It was very rare that they were live, live ball turnovers. And frankly, Boston was just a lot more disciplined in getting back. So even the live ball turnovers generally weren't turning into much. And I don't know. I think maybe Boston was just so focused this whole year on taking Toronto so seriously that they weren't really taking Miami too seriously. And Miami, they don't have a legacy of star power. Um, Goran Dragic is playing like an absolute star, but Goran Dragic is the most, un, I don't know if underrated, it's the right term, but I guess like unnoticed, uh, unheralded, star caliber unheralded. There we go. A star caliber player in the NBA and kind of feels like the Celtics are falling. They're, they're to kind of taking the bait on that kind of stuff, which is silly because they're NBA players and they shouldn't fall for any of that. But it's just, that's. There, there are certain things that you're seeing out there that frankly are just uncharacteristic of the Celtics, especially because of Celtics, despite all the hoopla around all their players and how Jason Tatum has already been deified by the time he was 20 years old and all that stuff. But like they've generally had an underdog attitude and they've played with that and they've played because of the w- – based on the way that Brad Stevens talks about the team, based on the way Marcus Smart feels views things um, and just that – maybe they're going against the ultimate underdog and that's why their underdogness is relatively looking uh, small, but they look like, they look like the Clippers. They look like a team with overwhelming talent that thinks it can just fall back on its overwhelming talent, and that isn't that just never really works.
1: Well, and I think the falling back on talent is a part of what's bothered me about Boston's offensive approach. Is that like Jason Tatum is a very good player who's blossoming into a star, but that doesn't mean he can create on anyone in the league one on one and get get easy buckets and score like that. He's just not that player. <laughs> like basically, no one is, and. That has been a, a big part of it for me is that, you know, creating, okay, well, let's, let's not spend that extra, it's, instead of taking 10 seconds to get into anything, take five of those seconds to try to work to get a more favorable matchup. And that was something they didn't do enough against Toronto, like get Norm Powell involved. Even Van Vliet is a wonderful defender, but he can't defend, like, I don't think he can defend Jason Tatum in an ISO. If we're choosing between Siakam or Ananobi and anybody else that's on the floor, it seems like a pretty easy choice to me. But the thing about Miami that is that is so interesting, and it's not like their, their offense was terrible in the regular season. They were using cleaning the glasses filter. They were eighth in the league. But they have been so much more dynamic. And what I will attribute that to is Goran Dragic being a player that he was not pre-hiatus. And some of that is... Eric Spolstra and their training staff and their coaching staff keeping Dragic on ice and trying to maximize the possibility that he could be more right physically at the end. And that is something we talk about it a lot in terms of load management and everything else for star players who are younger. Like that is a more modern trend. But I mean, the Warriors did this with Andre Guadalla. Various teams have done it with with veteran players that just don't have enough juice to do this all the time in the regular season. And I think the other part with Dragic is the extra passage of time, I think, really helped. I mean, the, the, the season is not ending in May and June. Instead, it's September. I think that's, that makes a big difference. It allows him to recover more and be be more of who he has been at times in the past. And Dragic, gives Miami an element that I didn't know that they were going to have. And was, I was a little bit more bullish on them after the bubble because Dragic looked more like himself than he has in a while, and that was huge. Because I think that this Miami offense, you know, without him, they have much better – they have these dynamic shooters and they've done a great job of using them. I mean there was something Nate talked about in the pod was that there were a couple of possessions that Miami got threes because basically a guy just ran to the ball really hard around the arc and t- uh, Duncan Robinson got one on Kemba who was ball watching. There were a couple by Jay Crowder as well. But Dragic gives them dynamism in the half court that they didn't have. And some of the Dragic out of bio stuff in particular was really great. And Hero has continued to grow as well. And so a question that we all had during that hiatus was who is going to, you know, it added this huge amount of variability to everything. And so it was like, basically, who's going to be out of shape? Maybe it's because they got COVID or personal tragedies or everything else. There are lots of different reasons why that happened. The Clippers have a couple of those. Or it could be you know like what guys really were able, had the chance to work on their games, what players are really better, and I think that or are just healthier physically and it 's interesting that Boston faced one of those what looked like was going to happen with Simmons, but then he got hurt again um before the series happened <laughs> and so I think that Miami has benefited, and i don 't mean this in like a passive way like it full credit to them they've they 've had more of a you know like they 've become something better than they were, and that 's fantastic
0: so I got like three things I want to say to that. Don't let me forget about talking about hero because that's – you hit on something really important there or Nate hit on something important there and you got credit too. But as far as the Drogage thing, while you were saying that, I was thinking I want to make this point of – See that's something Miami has that veteran that can really really lean into what he's great at and have that full fuel in the playoffs and elevate himself to a level he wasn't at the regular season and how Boston that's the one thing that they don't have on their roster. And then I remembered oh yeah we started talking about that guy it was Gordon Hayward yeah and you know we I have no idea we have no idea what to expect uh, from him but like. Hayward is the guy that kind of took the back seat during the regular season, and he's the guy that you expect in the playoffs. He's going to know how to step up and really seize those moments. And like Dragic, he's able to hit great contested shots with a level of comfort that nobody else really can on the team. So it's possible that Hayward coming back just gives them that other firepower to counter Dragic's firepower. And I mean – the, the margins are so close right now between these two teams in spite of how poorly Boston is playing that I'd assume even if, you know 70 percent Gordon Hayward is still going to be a huge boost for them. But then going to um the other uh, – going back to the hero thing that you're saying. So I think that's a great difference between Miami's offense and Boston's offense. And let's remember Boston's offense was elite during the regular season. Yeah. Like they – they were top. They were top four in both, or top five in both. I forget, but um, their offense was fin- fantastic during the regular season because one, I mean, they were at full strength and they had all these playmakers out there. But their role players got used to being surrounded by the playmakers that were going to have the ball most of the time. And so generally their job was to set a flare every here and there, but basically just kind of be in their spots and be ready to do something when the ball swung their way. So they have a relatively passive role in the offense while Miami, all of their guys, their job is to keep moving and keep trying to flow to be in a position to get the ball as opposed to trying to stay out of the way of all the different creators out there. So, When you're in these late game situations here and the defense is loading up on a playmaker, that's not a problem for Miami because all their supporting cast is used to trying to run, you know, run splits off of each other, run curls across the top of the arc to get towards the ball and put themselves in position to be a playmaker. While guys like Wanamaker and Grant Williams and Daniel Tyson, all that, they're just trying to figure out, well, what do I do now? Since I'm not I'm not the person that's supposed to be finishing the play. My job is just to either set up the play or be out of the way of the play play so Miami can just come up with so many more solutions in you know kind of in panic mode while Boston is just not accustomed to being in scramble mode
1: that's a great point and it's also a very human element of it that especially when you consider how hard all of these guys are trying defensively and how especially in late game situations it's high intensity all the time that Saying, okay, you're going to, instead of, instead of kind of finding your spot, you're going to go into a dead sprint for five seconds and your odds of getting the ball are 5%. And if if you get in that 5%, there's not far from a guarantee that you're going to get a shot. You're going to make a shot. And Miami partially because they have depth in the rotation. And because it's that, that is to be one of the greater distillations of the heat ethos is like, you have to do that. Like, that's how you're going to stay on the floor. But the other thing that Miami has, and it's not uniform, but it's more uniform for them than almost anybody, Boston might be one of the exceptions, is a lot of their players are pretty quick decision makers and can make a little something happen. So like Bam is one of the best decision makers for a big man that we that we have in the modern NBA. He's not at the like Jokic level or anything crazy like that, but he's a wonderful passer. He can do things intuitively. It doesn't have to just be within the flow of the play. But we've seen Hero and Duncan Robinson's getting a little bit more like he is, yeah. Primarily he's just a crazy good shooter and that's what he does. But like, you know, he's had a couple of like dribble fakes and some of that really basic stuff and he, Dragic is unbelievable at that and Jimmy Butler can can you know he can do two dribbles he usually does like eight dribbles in a good decision but he can do two <laughs> that that whole idea and I think that those situations and this is something I've gained a greater appreciation for watching various series over the last couple of years it it creates a an ecosystem where it's more likely to create something out of what call it close to nothing and Boston has some of those guys but as you brought up it's they have like five, which is a ton, but they're often playing other ones, and those players just aren't necessarily empowered. And the other thing that happens with Boston, and usually this is mostly a good thing, but it can be different in the playoffs, is it doesn't seem like the ball finds those, let's call them extraneous players that often. You know, like there are times where Tatum has it, or Kemba Walker has it, and they're wonderful players. No no harm, no foul to them. But Jalen Brown just, like, doesn't touch the ball for five possessions, or Marcus Smart doesn't touch it. And so, like, it gets harder to find a rhythm, and it gets harder to be motivated to do all of the little things, especially if your offense doesn't call for them, which theirs doesn't as much as some others do. And Boston's offense, you, you brought up, they were fourth on offense and fourth on defense. It's not like this is some failed state. They're far, they're far from that. But it can be hard if we're dealing as a practical human sense of, being, of, of knowing what to do and then being in the right place to do it.
0: Yeah, I mean Boston's offense is just going through a recession right now. Essentially, they—I uh, mean they—I I think you're making a great point, especially about Jalen Brown and when when I, I think I mentioned this earlier in our interview. Um, but he he was so great in the fourth quarter that there's just this—you uh, have to just ask that obvious question of why isn't he being involved in that way more throughout the game? Right, and i guess the only the one thing i definitely know that you can point to is that the Heat are taking 40 plus threes in these games the celtics are taking less than 30 which is insane and remember in the toronto series they were the ones that were taking 40 plus threes jalen brown was shooting two for 11 from three in a lot of those games so shit, at least he was taking all those shots and you need to because you need to keep him engaged because he's he's too damn talented and frankly he's been exposed a little bit here as not being able to really create off the dribble against really good defenses. And so you need him to be feeling super engaged that he's taking lots of threes. He's crashing the glass and his, his offensive rebounding has been massive in the last, four or five games. It has been one of the huge things that's saved them in crunch time. So they need to figure out a way to get him more involved with the offense earlier on, as opposed to every quarter being trying to get Kemba going or trying to get Tatum going and stuff like that. There isn't this level of egalitarianism to the offense that used to be there. And I don't know if it's because they're just facing the best defenses in the NBA and the pressure's on and they're, you know, and this is just this is – it's really hard <laughs> when you're in the conference finals. It is. And I mean like, uh, yes, Tatum and Brown have been in the conference finals a bunch so far in their careers. But they're still young players and they're still new to this level of their capability. Well, and you know, the like, role J- is
1: still changing too. Like you have all – like yeah. it, it's relevant experience, but it's not exactly the same.
0: Like, I remember I had a commenter uh, the other day trying to counter me saying like Jimmy Butler is a much more experienced player in these situations than Jason Tatum. And they're like, Jason Tatum has been to the conference finals a bunch. Jimmy Butler's never made it out of the second rounds. It's like, yeah, that's true. Sure. But Jimmy Butler is what 11 years into his career. And so he's been a lead scorer running an offense for like seven years now. And sure. Maybe he hasn't made it quite to this round of the playoffs, but that doesn't matter nearly as much as the fact that he's been the focal point of the deep of the opposing defense, for For more than half a decade at this point. So, his level of experience in the high pressure situations is far beyond what Tatum's experienced. Tatum, this is the first year that he's in that role. Jalen Brown, this is about the first and a half to second-ish year he's been in that role. You know, Kemba at least has more of that experience, but this is the first time Kemba's ever been in the series. Against an elite defense that knows how to really key in on him. Or I guess last series was probably that first time. Um, So, you know, this is still a relatively new experience for Kemba, but Miami, between Drogic and Butler, have two guys that have been doing this exact type of thing forever. And you can you can clearly see it at the ends. You can clearly clearly see clearly see it in the way that they pace themselves. And to suppose credit, he's done an incredible job of finding a couple quarters where they can run it. They can run the offense through Bam. And like you mentioned before, if Yoki shouldn't exist, we would be talking about Bam as a revolutionary passer at the position. But because we already have the GOAT passer at the position, Bam seems relatively underwell, or I guess not as remarkable as he really is. Um, but, yeah, Bam, he's doing unbelievable stuff out there. They just have this great balance where it's not about – it doesn't seem like it's about giving the guy his looks as much as just – figure as kind of finding a balance and then kind of going to the guy who's ready in that moment because the defense is giving that opportunity.
1: Yeah, And it's been so interesting for me because I have – Largely attuned to the idea of, you know, I, I call it undeniability, and basically it's that you're always going to have teams in the playoffs that can key to what in a, what a, their opponent wants to do, and they will try their damnedest to take it away. But there are players, and for me, an example of that was Kawhi Leonard last year, especially in the Bucks series, but also to an extent in the Sixers series and the Warriors series, who just they can just get theirs anyway. And that was a part of why I was so aggressively touting the Clippers as like I thought they were the most likely favorites to win the most likely title team and everything else. And oh, totally, there, there were parts of that process that, I mean, ended up being right. I was a little bit more skeptical on the Bucks. I didn't expect what happened to happen. But I, I worried about their half-court offense. I worried about all that. And then what I think what was so revelatory for me, and I'm not saying it's like where my mind is for where the sport is moving or anything crazy like that. Is first of all, Kawhi wasn't as good as I expected him to be. I think that's an important underlier to say there. But the other thing was that Denver deserves a ton of credit, and we've seen this throughout the Eastern Conference playoffs as well, of being making it harder on those people so that they can't necessarily be undeniable with Kawhi that was sending extra doubles or you know bringing putting putting in different defensive schemes. We saw the box and one that Toronto threw at Kemba Walker in the last series. And challenging other guys to beat them in different places and everything else. And so it's been fun to see kind of a pushback the other way. Now, it could very well happen that LeBron James and the Lakers roll through the Western Conference and roll through everything else, and then you go back to this like heliocentric idea again. It's entirely possible that it's going to be there. That's why you don't, you take all inputs and you figure out things from there, and it's always changing. But I've been very interested in how some of these more constellation schemes have worked offensively and defensively better in these playoffs than I expected.
0: Maybe teams are just smarter than they were a couple of years ago. Well, also, a lot of teams
1: have a bunch of really good defenders. Like you know, like what part of what stood out to me in the Boston-Toronto series, and it's true largely in this one as well, is there are just a lot of really good defensive players on the floor at any one time, and that makes it harder to attack.
0: Yeah, I, I think the trend that we're seeing across these uh, series is that the best teams are the teams with the most effective perimeter defenders, and I, I, um, I mean, Denver has four really good perimeter defenders in their rotation or maybe three i would say three three yeah so three okay then the lakers they have depending on the night they've got three or four um and obviously i'm assuming lebron at this point of the playoffs is going to be pretty locked in most of the time and obviously he's incredible when he wants to be uh and then you know the last the last couple of series there were tons of these guys yeah these yeah, teams and are my, built
1: and miami has 15 exactly <laughs> exactly <that> <laughs>
0: Yeah, I mean, have we? Have, I feel like I have to mention this every time I'm on a show talking about the series. Eric Spoelstra is the best coach in the NBA right now, and he's it's absolutely credible what he's doing. Like he gets
1: yeah, it's I mean, it, there's to the me, credit's spread
0: right around, but he me, gets the in, credit. He's
1: in that top tier, and I mean, they have great player development, but generally that we put that under the coach's umbrella. I, I mean, I mean, there's a parallel between Spoelstra and Nurse that I really like, which is. Have your players ready and go to whatever you need to to win. And the idea that nothing is sacred, nothing, you know, and, and to, that it is totally fine to ask your best players to do a lot and to take a backseat at specific moments in time. And that's something the Clippers never really did. And part of it is, Kawhi and Paul George or damn good and they're to taking a backseat to anybody. I understand that. But sure. it is part of like, if you want to talk about like, there are a lot of concepts of what heat culture is and all this stuff. And I mean, part of it is for me, the front office, because I'm a front office nerd, is being able to identify specific characteristics and not, not, they're not looking for a single archetype. They're looking for a specific kind of like something that makes somebody special and a mentality. And if you can get that together, they'll be like, okay, we can figure this out. Like Duncan Robinson and Tyler Johnson or Casey Paula, who hasn't worked out super. Roll so far, we'll see where that goes. Or bam, they're not necessarily similar players, but there are little there are some little commonalities, and then there's some larger ones, and they're like, Okay, we can turn you into this, and that's why Jimmy Butler's been such a fascinating element there. And Jake Crowder. Like they're not asking Jake Crowder to do a ton, like his responsibility list is not that long, but they're saying you need to go as hard as you can during this time, and you need to make sure that when you have the opportunity to do those things, you do it. And Jake Crowder, he does that. Like you know that better than almost anybody.
0: Sure. I mean, Crowder's good. Crowder's good when he's in a, simplif- a simplified role. Like he can handle two or three things really well. But going to your to your organizational point, I think that if you really could boil down the heat culture into a couple words, it would be persistence and stamina. Yeah. And we've, we've heard Eric Spolstra use the word persistence several times over the last few days. That's what they really value. That's the thing that makes their offense special is that they're able to keep moving – at first action speed as the shot clock gets down into the single digits, which is something that most teams can't handle. And they continue to do it all the way through the end, and that's why we keep seeing the Celtics having huge leads late in these games, and then Miami being able to outlast them. Miami is a 48-minute team, or I think as Stevens put it the other day, a 53-minute or a 58-minute, whatever, however many minutes it has to be. If it was 100, they they'd
1: the, be a 100-minute team. Honestly, they, like they have enough depth. They're going to outlast
0: it. you. Yeah. They're going to outlast you, and it's the que- I guess the question is, can you punch hard enough so that, because they're going to rope-a-dope you, so are you going to be able to get big enough knocks on them that you can knock them out before you get to the yeah. 12th round and, there were times and boston in, hasn't been able to and there
1: were times in games one and two where it kind of felt like boston was close to that and just didn't get what yeah. didn't get quite there and i think they can in future games this is not like i don't think this series is done but it could be done relatively quickly if boston doesn't figure it out in game three
0: yeah well yeah boston ain't coming back from three nothing i know sure yeah. sure as hell know that um, and to go back to your your spo and nurse comparison they had spo has jimmy butler nurse has kyle lowry Those are two very, very specific special breed of player that fits perfectly for the identity of those teams. Stevens has Marcus Smart, who kind of is a similar type of guy. He's not quite able to do offensively what those guys are able to do. And I think that might be a little bit of the difference maker there at the end of the day is that they just, you know, they had guys, Nurse and Svolstra, they have guys that can close at at, at any point of the court and the ultimate level at the highest level at the final moment. And you just always were able to fall back on that. And we saw – we see Butler has literally been the guy winning the games at the end here with his defense and his hustle and his rebounding. We saw Lowry do that several times against the Celtics and almost beat them. And Boston doesn't quite have that person that does it on a nightly basis quite at that level. They got a couple guys that are getting close, but nobody that's quite there.
1: Well, and it's, I mean, you brought up Marcus Spartan. I, I, I'm not saying especially like one of the big differences between, let's say Jason Tatum and Lowry and and Butler is that at the current moment in time, Tatum has more on his plate offensively but i was I was a little bit frustrated by a couple of the lack of attention and defensive plays that he had not saying Tatum has to be that guy but it's a value add you know if the player has superstar pick, does. He? yeah what
0: I, he does I, yeah. continue I was just think I, I, Tatum does you can put that on him
1: yeah and so I, I think that it's it'll be it'll be interesting to see where the Celtics team goes moving forward they have a ton of talent I think that the future is incredibly bright there the present is bright too I mean not not to, I'm not putting putting the series past them or anything else like that I'm going to give you make this a very vague choose your own adventure basically to me there are two other threads I want to talk about briefly one is the Miami Milwaukee series and the other is the Western Conference playoffs and so I wanted to give it to you because you because I know what I've been watching I don't know where you've been going which of those to you speaks to you a little bit more to talk about we'll talk about both briefly
0: let's go to the west i think we've, we've we, we can only we can only praise miami so much in one hour i think we need to spread this out a little bit
1: okay so i'll, I'll open it then um for you the, there there are obviously only two teams left out of the eight but we've had six series completed so far and the seventh will start very soon what are your big takeaways from the west playoffs? from what you've seen
0: um Jokic is doing something i didn't really think was possible which is he's dominating he's an he's an offensive player that's dominating with very little movement in the freedom of movement era he's kind of he's kind of doing what dirk did at the beginning of the last of this decade um but he he's doing it in an era where the big advantage that you get out of the rules is that if you're a smaller player the defense can't touch you as you attack and so you can use that to your advantage to get deep penetration and score, and he 's finding a way to do to basically kind of enable that for teammates that aren 't as capable ball handlers by doing what he does. And I mean, we will have to get to Jamal Murray getting pretty close to NBA history here with the scoring outbursts that he's putting off. But I mean, what Jokic is doing as someone who loves the style of play that he goes with, that it's everything that we, you know, people that nerd out about basketball always want to see. But I, I can't believe it's happening and I don't see any reason to expect it to stop working against Los Angeles.
1: Right, and also Again. Jokic can occupy very different spaces on the floor, and totally bends the defense around him, which I think opens things up a lot for the, for his Nuggets teammates. And you brought that up; so they can have some more limited guys, and that leads to like Jeremy Grant being more viable. Gary Harris, who's been excellent since he returned, that's one of the most stunning developments for me in these entire plays. Gary Harris came back <coughs> in Game Six of the first round, having basically been out of commission for since pre-hiatus, and has been. Awesome defensively, inconsistent offensively, but that's the Gary Harris experience, and that has really, to me, been a big key setter. But then the other one was, I thought Jokic, along with the rest of the team, and Mike Malone, Jokic, everyone deserves credit for this, they got so much better defensively within the Jazz series, and then Game 1 of the Clippers series was anomalous, but for a bunch of different reasons, including that they were just super-duper gassed. But the Nuggets defense has stepped up to a level that I didn't think they had and that is what makes them a viable conference finals team when I didn't think they were before. Yeah, they could have made it last year just because they were better than the teams they they faced because the three three of the four best teams in the Western Conference were on the other side of the bracket last year. But Denver's defense is a real key to them making it as far as they have and potentially making it further.
0: Isn't it funny that they we were talking about how they have the worst defense in the NBA like a week before the playoffs started and they somehow I've just turned it around. It's it's insane that they've been able to turn it around. And it doesn't it and doesn't uh, mean
1: that it'll be that way forever, but they but it's it's not just like, oh, opponents are missing threes or anything like that. They've played a lot better.
0: And I think what's good about this series is that Jokic's major weakness defensively has been his inability to rotate and protect the rim. Just to be able to give like a legitimate contest at the rim and the Lakers don't have that many good finishers at the rim or at least that many good dribble penetrators who are going to really put Jokic to the test. It's mostly going to be their two primary guys. And so he is he's gotten a lot better at that over the course of the Clippers series. He finally started stepping up and going vertical and not just kind of standing under the rim watching the guy go at him. Um, He's he got he's not good at it yet but it's like passable enough that they can keep winning and so if you can keep LeBron if you can put enough pressure on LeBron that he's not breaking through in the half court every single time then I think it's going to make Jokic passable at the rim but also Paul Millsap might be the one at the rim most of the time because AD might just be pulling Jokic out towards the high post and AD torched him enough in the past that I think that was kind of the wake up call that Jokic needed to kind of You know, kind of really start playing harder on defense. And I think that's what kind of led Jokic to actually starting playing better on defense in the second half of the season and probably is the only reason why he's passable on defense at this point.
1: Yeah, it'll be interesting to track, but yeah, we should talk about Jamal Murray. I mean, Murray, it is definitely at times boomer bust for him, but the booms have been awfully impressive. Whether it's a lot of it against great competition, and you know that was one of the big things that's won the Clippers series. I mean, it would yes, the you know the the second half comebacks were there, but there were times where he was really keeping them afloat offensively, just making tough shots.
0: Yeah, I mean he he has to another forty point game at the end of the series. I think it's the record is. Now, six games, or is it five? I can't remember. But he's one 40-point game away from tying Rick Barry for the most 40-point games in a playoff run by a 22-year-old uh, in NBA history. So for, for all the accolades that people, that all the stats and records that Jason Tatum was breaking, this is probably the most incredible one that's out there. And I mean, Mur- 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 Murray and Mitchell did in that first round was so incredible. Uh, but the fact that Murray found a way to make that, not just like a one hit wonder, he's still Jamal Murray. So he still is going to have a bunch of duds and then a couple of remarkable ones, but he seems to be getting a little bit more consistent, which is great. And You know, the Clippers, they had to keep trapping him way up high, and that opened things up for the rest of the Denver offense because he's been so great at beating those traps. I think the one thing that's a major concern for Denver is that I don't think the Lakers will need to do that against Murray. I think they have the defensive talent to avoid it.
1: Well, and I think that one of the tactical mistakes that the Clippers made, in my opinion, was you can bend your entire defense to take Jamal Murray away, or you can just be like, he'll have his good nights, he'll have his bad nights, and yes, he had more good ones than you're comfortable with, but I think that the rest of the Nuggets, Jokic obviously excluded, are limited enough that I think what you do is you take your lumps with those guys. I've talked about this with, going back, this was my big criticism of of Spoh in the 2011 NBA Finals was that I thought that they they catered too aggressively to Dirk, going back to somebody we just discussed with Jokic. It, and basically, let those guys do their thing and take everybody else away and trust in your offense. And I think that it can work reasonably well. I thought the Clippers, they, they broke too much because they got away and they don't have great recovery help defenders. Like, that just wasn't really what the Clippers have. They're kind of weirdly station to station on both ends of the floor. And so by shifting the the attack the way that they did, they took away the things that they actually do well. And I thought that was a, a really big problem. Also, you know, their star players didn't play up to the levels of their, their talent, and the Nuggets guys absolutely did. And yeah, so it'll be, I, I'm fascinated with the series. I think the Lakers have the talent advantage. I think the Lakers defense has been underappreciated basically this entire season because LeBron is the transition dynamo. He's an unbelievable player and his defensive effort has been way better this year than it was last year. But I think that the the Lakers have more gears there. We've seen, yeah, they've lost game one in both of their series, but then they've figured out a lot and they've continued to get better. And that I think is a big, is a big help for them. And if that happens, it's a problem for the Nuggets because the Nuggets generally continue to improve over Series 2, and we'll see where it goes. Do,
0: do you think the Lakers go back to double big so they can guard Jokic and, uh, and in a size?
1: Yes. And I think it's a mistake, but I think that's going. I think that's where <laughs> Vogel wants to go. I think it's it's, it's where it's going. Um, I want to turn briefly to the Rockets. I mean, we've seen the the coaching carousel already continuing there, and the Rockets. So I was working on their off season preview for the Athletic the last couple of days, and the point that I was trying to get across. I also did a podcast with our colleague Sam Bassini talking about this. About the, to me, they have the least flexible roster in the NBA in the immediate and. Least flexible does not mean bad. I mean, the Rockets are... Uh, I had them as a second-tier title contender this year, especially once they made all their trades, and they're, they're a really good team. But I wonder where things go from here for two different reasons. One is, owner Tomer Fucheda has been very reluctant to pay the tax, and they are, because of the likely drop in the salary cap and tax off of what was expected, this gets a lot tighter for the Rockets than they were expecting, which is a big problem. And then the second one is they if their personnel is basically going to be the same. I wonder what the next coach is really going to do. Now they can do a little few little things differently offensively and defensively, but I thought their defense has played well this year and I wonder where it go I wonder where it goes from here because it seems like it's going to be so similar, but I've been wrong on this before.
0: I genuinely wonder if they're going to hire an inexperienced coach so that they can get a cheaper coach so that Tillman can save some money. I think they might. Uh, I, I really think that's the first thing, and it's not Daryl's fault. It's it's that's what Tillman wants because Lu seems like a pretty pretty clear selection for them. Um, someone that they know can handle, you know, that can handle the the task of can you take us over the top in the playoffs? Um, you know, has some good relationships with guys on the team, uh, and I think is pretty comfortable going to a switching scheme on defense. Because from people I talked to around Cleveland, apparently he wanted to do more switching and uh, Longabardi, who was their defensive coordinator at the time, his system was not a switching system. He was doing more hard showing and retreating and they just stuck with that for too long. So I think Lou would actually be a good person to come in and, and help them improve their switching scheme. Um And maybe hell, maybe they even become a zone team. I mean, they seem like they're pretty well built to be a zone team, and it seems like everybody's going towards zone more. So I like Lou as a hire. Uh, There's been there's been momentum towards John Lucas getting promoted back into the top chair, and I mean he's very well beloved as an assistant that's been there so far uh ime Adoka, still available and everybody seems to be really interested in him and i assume d'antoni is going to get the sixers job so Udoka's is not going to get it there either so there, there's a couple of good candidates out there but i, I think Udoka is probably most likely to get it because he's never been a head coach and he probably just can't ask for as big of a price as the other guys
1: it's entirely possible uh Anything else in the West or do you want to move briefly to Buckseat?
0: Uh, any Monty McNair takes as the front office expert Du jour?
1: I don't know him well enough. So I will I will defer to those who do.
0: Yeah. I don't know him that well, but I've you know met him I think a couple times. He's he seems like another great Daryl protege who will streamline that operation and give them a sense of purpose and efficiency that they've been horribly missing in Sacramento.
1: I would love to see it. I mean I there there are times where it's like, Oh yeah, it's good to have some run teams because that gives us something to talk <laughs> about. But I want to see every team get a chance to be well run, and I hope that McNair can do that with the Kings. And there are a lot of things running against him, just like there are for Leon Rose in New York. But we'll see, and I, I hope that it works out because that you know every every fan base deserves to have a well run team, and we're never going to see all thirty at, at one time. But we you know the hope is that we can always get a little bit higher and briefly, I mean, so there, and this always happens because there's a regular, it's an MVP is a regular season award. And it was given out, of course, on Friday, Giannis won it as he deserved to. He was the best, most valuable regular season player, also the defensive player of the year. So don't forget that. And there's always this idea that the playoffs are a referendum and all that type of stuff. And I think it's it shows that it's well decided. And Giannis was the deserving MVP to me, but he is not a perfect player. And I thought that Miami not only did a good job, Going after some of Giannis's weakness, like him being a limited shooter, but also being, you know, not the greatest passer. Once he's already gotten downhill, he can get a little bit tunnel and get a little bit of tunnel vision. But also challenging Milwaukee support players who just aren't that dynamic, and their offense doesn't really do a whole lot. And so it led to them, the led to the Bucks being more stagnant. And Miami wielded that to their advantage and crushed them.
0: So I guess this is where I get to do my total season award pitch, which is pretty straightforward. Uh, There should be regular season awards because it is the majority of the season. But over time, we always talk about rings. We always talk about the playoffs. But frankly, actual playoff performances, playoff stats, all that kind of stuff. Nobody knows any of that stuff. Nobody remembers any of that stuff. But that's the stuff that we all say is important.
1: Quick interjections. That's also why players should never buzz or clutch in the playoffs because nobody cares.
0: Yeah, exactly. But so the point is, is that the the main awards should be total season awards. We should have another round of awards that we vote on after the season where we balance regular season performance with playoff performance. And I think we just don't do that in America, probably just generally because there's – You know, like there's there's equal opportunity in the regular season. Everyone's supposed to play the same amount of games. And then obviously you get to a knockout tournament and then things change after the playoffs. But like we're smart enough and we have so much access to resources and stats and video that we're able to figure things out. It put together a much more comprehensive analysis that accounts for the difference in opportunity between someone who is great in the regular season and gets dismantled in the second round like Giannis does versus LeBron, who if the Lakers go ahead and win the title, I mean, LeBron was second MVP voting by a pretty comfortable margin, but I think most people would agree that LeBron should be the MVP if his team of the total season of his team goes on to, uh, to win the title. So I wish that we could account for that as opposed to having just a final Finals MVP that's based on whoever performed well in that specific series and doesn't even recognize that person's performance over the course of the entire playoff run
1: I think it's a worthwhile idea to consider I also for me I'm a little worried about recency bias and then you say you support having full regular season awards which I which I do as well like I think you get there and one other way to resolve it first of all i think there should be full playoff awards it's shocking to me that we don't do that and it doesn't Definitely. matter if those have recency bias you know if it's a playoff only award yeah yeah the the teams that go to the finals are going to be disproportionately involved in the all playoff teams or however however it's being done And then the interesting way to resolve it, other than having, like, full season awards that are done after the playoffs, is Kevin Pelton's been doing this for years, but basically a a basketball door, you know, going doing that approach. Because the funny thing about—and this year is obviously different—but the funny thing about doing basketball by calendar year is it's a very strange cross-section. I once did a year-in-review podcast for Real Jam Radio— and almost everybody I had on as a guest is like, this is a really weird way to think about basketball. But I actually think it's kind of a good thing because what that does sometimes, depending on where the schedule goes from here, is it kind of separates out some of the recency bias a little bit. And the idea that then it could incorporate an international play, it could incorporate other stuff. Like, I think your approach is worthwhile. I think that, you know, I think that, they're, that doing a full playoff awards is something, and I think you might support that as well. Um, And yeah, I just think the league needs to think about that more. And it's what do we want to reward? What do we want to praise and and identify? And I I think that there wouldn't be too many people arguing that, just giving a single award for finals MVP and the championship trophy does a fair job of representing great playoff performances when the league and its broadcast partners do such effort to talk about the importance of the playoffs. And we see it also in the way that teams manage the regular season. Like, give more, do more praise, recognition. And there's plenty of real estate and plenty of time. And also, theoretically, it gives, it could give the, what depending on how the league wants to structure the off season, it could even give them ways to stay relevant for, for a larger part of it.
0: I agree. I mean, just, you know, we have these NBA awards, this NBA awards show, which obviously we don't have this year because of COVID, where they're saving all the regular season awards for after the playoffs, which is. It, they're completely meaningless at this point. So I think it's a great way for the NBA to have that award show that they care about by just changing the structure of the awards that so you do announce the regular season awards right after the regular season is over. And then you still have the award show for the other important awards, whether it be total season or it be playoffs. Because at the end, the NBA is going to do whatever makes them the most money and gets them the most attention.
1: Very true. Uh, anything else you want to discuss? We've covered a lot of ground already.
0: I don't think there's anything left in my brain.
1: That's totally fair. Thank you so much for taking the time, my friend.
0: <laughs> this is great as always.
1: Thanks again to Jared Weiss for taking the time to come on. You can read his excellent work at The Athletic, and you can also follow him on Twitter at Jared Weiss NBA. NBA. Love having him on and love getting his perspective on really what's going on with the Celtics and the Eastern Conference more broadly. Plenty going on in other spaces for me. Dunked on Prime continuing to go strong, so we're doing the split of one free public episode per week that usually comes out on Sunday night, Monday morning, and then we the rest of the episodes, however many we do, and it sometimes is going to be more because we'll, you know, we we'll record recording a specific game. We're just, we aren't tethered to the five times a week structure that we used to be. So you can check that out, Dunked on Prime. We have podcast only and total access where we have salary cap sheets and a discord server and a bunch of cool stuff so you can check all that out written work is at the athletic my off-season preview series is rolling along have a lot of them published recently including the oklahoma city thunder and then the rocket should be coming out soon and then a bunch in process i'm putting the finishing touches on my clippers one right around now as too so you should be able to see that in the next couple days and nate and i are also doing the live show the nba cast pretty regularly during these conference finals and nba finals so you can check that out on my twitter account on nate's and we we do have a public calendar, which Nate tweets out more than I do in the interest of full and complete disclosure. But if you want to support this show, there are a lot of different ways that you can do it. You can leave a rating, leave a review in the podcast player for choosing, whether that's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, really wherever you want to go. Really do appreciate it. It helps other people find the show. Same thing with word of mouth. Tell other people you like a specific episode or the show in general that can help them find it. And for real GM Radio in particular, subscribing, downloading every episode is really valuable because it's never going to come out on a specific day of the week. There will never be a schedule for it because there can't be. And so that's why subscribing, it'll pop into your podcast player, whatever one that is, whenever it is available. But the single most important thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors. Bet online, use that podcast one promo code for your awesome sign up bonus, and to tell them that you came from us. So you can check all that out. If you have any feedback, good, bad, or indifferent, Danny Larue and mba at gmail.com is the way to get it to me. If you take the time to write it, I will take the time to read it. And I will try to respond. I'm not the greatest at that, but they go to a separate place in my inbox. So I really do read everything the day it comes in. It's important to me. And that's about it for now. So you can, I think Real GM Radio will be earlier next week. Nothing locked in yet, but that's kind of where things are going. So you can keep an eye on it. That's why it's good to subscribe because you never know when it's going to pop in. Thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. We'll